Welcome to the 71st episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a range of medical topics can be information on a range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertperlmd.com. Let's begin with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life, and then go on to discuss some medical issues of broader impact. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, we're seeing multiple new versions of Omicron emerging around the world, just as we would predict from the continuous and random nature of viral mutations. The new strains have labels such as BQ.1 and BQ.1.1. What's different now is that rather than a single new variant taking over the world, we're seeing multiple variants with similar changes in the virus's spike protein, each capable of making it hard for the antibodies in our blood to attach to the virus. This is what scientists call convergent evolution. It's a biological process that we've seen with the flu in the past, but not COVID, at least so far. If this mutation process continues, various strains may end up being relatively equivalent in immunity resistance and transmissibility. The good news is that the new bivalent vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna continue to protect against severe disease in people with normal immunity against both the BA.5 and these new sub-variants. All this has created a complex communication challenge for policy experts and elected officials. There's President Biden, who announced that the pandemic is over. There's the Republican Party that wants to cut back on spending and fighting COVID because of all the progress we've made. We're seeing the daily death rates continue to decline. All of this implies COVID is moving into the rearview mirror, but we also have a virus that we know will mutate and at some point become less vulnerable to the antibodies that were created by the original vaccine. And we know that immunity, particularly the neutralizing antibodies in the blood, which are, which are our body's first line of defense, they wane over time. That means we might be protected today, but less so six months from now. As such, despite the current situation, the wise thing for people to do is to get the new vaccine and boost their immunity. But in the minds of many people, why do this? if the pandemic is over? The answer, of course, is that a pandemic can be over today and flare up a few months from now. The way you keep it under control is through maintaining immunity, and the best way to do that is through vaccination. But getting people to take action now against a potential problem, something in the future, that's really difficult. You know, we see the same tendency 
to minimize potential risk in the future relative to disease prevention overall and the need to take action now to prevent complications from chronic diseases in the future. And we don't do a very good job at it across the United States. In the US, we have this belief that doctors and hospitals can reliably reverse disease. The truth is, preventing these types of problems is easier, safer, more reliable, and less expensive than treating them when they arise. When it comes to these new viral strains, they're adding danger that would be best off avoiding to the extent possible through increasing immunity today. Nearly all of them are resistant to many of the medical treatments that have helped in the past against other strains. And as such, we have a double whammy potentially coming this winter. New variants and reduced immunity. And the difficulties will be most severe in the people who don't get boosted and those who are immunocompromised. Robbie, a listener wrote and said she heard the cost of being vaccinated would be rising next year. Is this true? Jeremy, the listener is correct. Since the vaccines were developed, they've been purchased through the government and made available to people at no cost. Sometime early in 2023, this will end, and people along with their insurers will be expected to pay the bills. And to that end, rather than charging $30, which is the price the federal government pays, Pfizer plans to charge between $110 and $130 per shot to individuals and their insurance companies. Of course, as with almost everything related to American healthcare, the reasons are complex and rarely rational from a health perspective. When the government was paying the bill and encouraging people to roll up their sleeves, the number of people being vaccinated was relatively high although lower than in many other nations. Now, people are predicting that the number of shots administered will go down as individuals have to pay for the vaccines, and that will generate a series of consequences. We can expect that health insurance premiums will rise due to much higher vaccine costs. Second, severe disease will be more common as the rate of boosting drops, leading to more hospitalizations and even higher medical costs and insurance pricing. Drug companies don't hesitate to charge more for medications, even when there's no logical need to do so. Of course, that's not what they tell the public. In this case, Pfizer's touting the value that the vaccine generates for society. But of course, the company ignores the dozens of other medications that have sold at prices way above the value generated. All in all, these vaccines might need to be priced slightly higher to reflect potentially lower demand. But four times, that's exorbitant. And for people without insurance, it likely will be prohibitive. And the end of government payment will not only be for vaccines, but also tests and treatment. Should there be a mutant that ends up being more dangerous than the current variants, our nation will be in major trouble. I'm always shocked at how short-sighted our approach to prevention is in this country. For two decades, the cost of medical care has risen 
twice as fast as general inflation, and yet life expectancy, it hasn't gone up at all. And now not only are we eliminating funding for what is an ongoing public health crisis, but a case is winding its way through the U.S. District Court to eliminate the requirement for coverage of all preventive health services that were enacted during the Affordable Care Act. If the presiding judge, Reed O'Connor, rules for the plaintiffs, we're trying to have the court strike down the provision, claiming that the Preventive Services Task Force that is currently defining what needs to be offered at no expense wasn't appointed by Congress, then millions of Americans could lose coverage for cancer screening, mental health screening, and other proactive healthcare interventions. You know, let me ask you, Jeremy, as a patient, does it make sense to you that the government and insurers seem willing to pay for so many complex services and facilities to treat people in once they have a heart attack, stroke, or cancer? But how reticent they are to make the investments needed to reduce the incidence of these frequently avoidable problems. Robbie, it doesn't make sense to me. And I think that, you know, these are some of the issues that cause many healthcare consumers to distrust and be frustrated with both the government and insurers, especially, you know, with both premiums and deductibles on the rise. Healthcare costs are increasing much faster than the average consumer can keep up with, which will only cause them to put off care until absolutely necessary and leaving many of them functionally uninsured, even though they have health insurance. Robbie, there is still a lot of debate around myocarditis after vaccination. Any new research? Jeremy, we're learning more about this rare but worrisome complication. The New England Journal of Medicine recently published a study from Israel on 182,000 adolescents who were given the vaccine and the nine cases of myocarditis that developed. The great news is that all these cases were mild and each of the nine individuals fully recovered without sequelae. The authors conclude, quote, vaccine-induced myocarditis in adolescents appears to be a rare adverse event that occurs predominantly in males after the second vaccine dose. The clinical course appears to be mild and benign over a period of six months, and cardiac imaging suggests a favorable long-term prognosis. Whether this study will lead parents to vaccinate their adolescents in the future isn't clear, given the relatively low risk that younger individuals face, but the fear of this complication shouldn't be the deciding factor, at least based on this detailed clinical study. Robbie, I've heard the word triple-demic used recently. What is that and what does it mean? Jeremy, triple-demic refers to the three viral threats poised to strike our nation this winter. First is COVID, which is likely to become increasingly prevalent as people spend more time together indoors. And with immunity from prior vaccination and infection waning and new variants continually arising, most public health officials predict rising number of cases over the next six months. Then, as in most years, there's influenza. The flu season seems to be starting earlier this year than in the past and a vaccine hesitancy from COVID spills over into the flu vaccine, we can see a huge number of cases, hospitalizations, and death. Remember, the flu takes the lives of 40 to 50,000 people in most years. 
And rounding out the trifecta is RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. It's the most common cause of respiratory hospitalizations in infants, and infection is common in people of all ages, including individuals who have been infected before. And like COVID and the flu, it can be deadly in the elderly and in people who are immunocompromised. Currently, there's no vaccine to protect individuals against this virus, although several companies are working to develop one, both for people themselves and to give to pregnant mothers to protect their soon-to-be-born children. It's expected that Pfizer will submit an application to the FDA for its RSV vaccine for pregnant women by year's end. This triple-demic reflects the high transmissibility of each of these three viruses, the fact that as a result of masking and hand-washing to protect against COVID over the past two years, the other two viruses were minimal in incidence, and that has reduced immunity overall. And finally, there's the biology that each of these three viruses attack the respiratory tract and lungs and can be additive to each other. The total number of deaths could soar in the winter of 2023 as a result. Jeremy, from a public health perspective, if everyone wore masks and washed their hands frequently during the winter, we could avoid millions of infections and tens of thousands of deaths. And yet, unlike in other countries, Americans are reticent to do so. Any thoughts on why that's the case and how we might change it given the triple-demic we face? Robbie, I think this is going to be something that's going to be extremely difficult to change, and I don't think it likely ever will for the majority of Americans. I remember when I was a college student seeing some of the foreign students in my dorms wearing masks during cold and flu season. I even remember asking one of them why, and they told me the reasoning behind it was twofold. One, if they had cold and flu-like symptoms, they didn't want to spread them. And two, they did not want to get sick living so closely with other people uh, who had cold and flu symptoms. I think because of how the pandemic was, again, so politicized and how so many Americans now look at masks as part of the bigger picture of the COVID restrictions, including lockdowns, job loss, uh, and not being able to visit dying relatives, et cetera, I think trying to encourage the average American to wear a mask uh, during cold and flu season will bring back enough bad memories of early on in this pandemic that they will not want to deal with it even knowing the risks. Robbie, a listener was recently vaccinated with the old boosters and wonders about the new bivalent one. What does the data show? Jeremy, it's appearing that the new vaccine is superior to the old one, at least based on its ability to generate the antibodies that circulate in our blood and serve as the first line of immunity defense. And the immunity this new vaccine generates was found to be superior even when compared to the immunity in people who had been previously infected with COVID. Moreover, there did not appear to be any more risks with the new vaccine than with the older ones. More specifically, researchers compared two groups of people who received the booster injection. There were those who had a 50 microgram dose of the original vaccine, and those who were given a combination of a 25 microgram of the original plus 25 micrograms of the Omicron BA.1 spike mRNA vaccine. This is together the bivalent vaccine. The neutralizing antibody levels were twice as high after the new combination vaccine compared to the original vaccine alone. And when tested against the current BA.4 and BA.5 variants, 
the combination vaccine proved significantly better at generating circulating immunity. Although very encouraging, this data reflected measurements of blood samples and laboratory testing. The true evaluation will come from the clinical trials that are currently in progress. In the interim, based on this data and other research submitted by the drug companies, the FDA has approved the bivalent vaccines for children and adolescents aged 6 to 17, as well as previously for all adults. Robbie, listeners enjoyed our conversation on long COVID in our last episode. What's new? The most interesting recent study came from the VA. What the researchers found was that Paxlovid, the antiviral medication taken orally within five days of COVID symptoms, that this medication not only reduced the chances that people would need hospitalizations or die, but also diminished the likelihood of their developing the symptoms of long COVID, including shortness of breath, neurocognitive impairment, and fatigue. In total, the authors looked at the medical records of 56,000 people who tested positive for COVID between March 1st, 2022 and June 30th, 2022. All the participants had at least one risk factor for long COVID, such as cancer, age over 60, or being a smoker. Among this group, there was 9,217 patients who were treated with Paxlovid. Overall, taking Paxlovid diminished the risk of death by 48% and the risk of long COVID by 26%. Assuming the results of this study are confirmed in other studies, including ones that include a much more diverse population than those individuals cared for at the VA, this would be very encouraging data. Robbie, as usual, what's this episode's newest piece of information about COVID relative to kids? Jeremy, the biggest news is educational, not medical. Each year, fourth and eighth grade children are tested for reading and math ability. The results are released through what is called the nation's report card. The newest results are frightening. Math scores declined in nearly every state between 2019 and 2022 and reading scores also fell in almost all of them. Nearly four in 10 eighth graders failed to grasp basic math concepts and reading scores fell back to the 1992 levels. Not a single state saw a notable improvement in average test scores. Overall, math scores for eighth graders dropped by eight points with a 10 point change equivalent to an entire year of education, and fourth graders experienced a half-year decline. All of this bodes poorly for our nation, not just now, but for decades into the future. Robbie, listeners are really enjoying our expanded focus on medical events beyond COVID-19. What's new? Jeremy, increasingly patients are being treated more like consumers in various areas of their health care. A major change that is happening right now is in the area of hearing aids. They are now available over the counter, which means that they are far less expensive and no longer require a visit with an audiologist. As an example, Walmart will offer a range of options from $199 to $999, and that's compared to a current retail price of between $2,000 and $8,000. And Best Buy is now providing an online hearing assessment for patients considering 
purchasing hearing aids to determine their level of hearing loss. In total, this shift could impact 30 million Americans. We saw this empowerment of patients as consumers during COVID with the explosion in home testing. We're seeing it with approaches to orthodontia that bypass seeing an orthodontist as being considered for birth control pills. This is one of the most controversial areas of healthcare. On one hand, you have the healthcare professionals who see it essential that patients consult a clinician prior to obtaining these products, medications, and treatments. The argument is that patients don't have the expertise to get the best results and avoid potential complications. But on the other hand, you have the various consumer groups that feel the current costs are exorbitant and stand in the way of individuals getting the services and products in the first place. And although there's a rare chance of a clinician finding an associated medical issue, in the areas that we're discussing, rarely is that the case. Of course, the best solution would be if a healthcare professional could be involved and provide the desired solution at a lower cost. But so far, that doesn't happen. This is the middleman mentality that we've discussed on other Fixing Healthcare podcasts. Rather than finding a way to best meet the needs of patients, companies and individual clinicians offer services that address the need, but do so at elevated pricing. I predict this debate is going to intensify in the near future as the do-it-yourself economy continues to expand. Jeremy, how do you feel about this greater patient-slash-consumer power? How do you balance the potential small risks of something being missed against the huge cost savings? Should the patient be the one to decide how much risk he or she is going to take, or should the process be regulated by the government? Robbie, I'm a firm believer in small government and allowing Americans to decide for themselves how much they want, uh, how much risk they want to take as long as there is no harm to others. I think adult patients, especially those who are on private insurance, should have the right to take as much risk as they want for cost savings. That being said, I think maybe the government should have the right to regulate this process when it comes to Medicare and Medicaid patients, since they are ultimately funded by the taxpayer. Uh, my concern with this is how many Americans will be avoiding care when it would be cheaper for them until they have to visit a doctor for their condition as it has you know, turned into ma something major. I think, again, with premiums and deductibles increasing faster than people's yearly pay raises, leaving them functionally uninsured, you will see more and more people putting off care and wanting to do things the cheap and easy way and put off being seen for issues uh, before they turn into something major. Robbie, we talked last episode about the growing unaffordability of healthcare for people. I've read patients and parents of kids are cutting corners on things like insulin. This seems wrong. Is there something I'm missing? Unfortunately, Jeremy, you've got it exactly right. In fact, a new study in the Annals of Internal Medicine found that 16.5% of people with diabetes severe enough to require insulin. And we're talking about 1.3 million Americans in total. They don't take the dose of insulin that their doctors prescribed because they can't afford to buy it. Now, here's the really absurd part. U.S. prices for insulin aren't just slightly higher 
than 32 other high-income countries. They're five to 10 times higher. This is simply unconscionable. It's price gouging. Beyond that, they're more cost-effective, equally effective, biosimilar insulins being manufactured in other countries that could make insulin affordable for all Americans. But U.S. manufacturers continue to use a variety of legal maneuvers to block approval of these substances by the FDA. Among patients who don't take the amount of insulin they require, some reduce the dose each time they inject themselves, and others skip doses entirely. Uninsured Americans, as you might guess, had the highest rate of rationing at 29%. But 19% of individuals with private insurance and 14% of Medicare recipients did so as well. What was most shocking to me was that 14% of the people with type 1 diabetes, these are often kids, they have a high chance of dying from their disease, they fail to get the appropriate dose solely as a result of economic challenges. And just imagine if one of them was your child. Talk about something that's medically dangerous and societally foolish. This is it. There are both short-term dangers of dying and long-term probabilities of experiencing heart attacks, developing kidney failure, and requiring amputation of feet and legs. The drug companies that price in this fashion and the elected officials who take money for their campaigns from these drug companies and then vote against allowing the government to negotiate prices for drugs, as is done in just about every other nation, they should be ashamed and embarrassed. But unfortunately, that's the current American healthcare system and political process, and I don't see it changing very quickly anytime in the near future. What else is new? Jeremy, it's harder and harder to defend the U.S. healthcare system the more we pull back the covers. In this case, I'm thinking of a recent study that demonstrates blatant bias in action. The researchers studied 377 patients receiving care for heart failure at 21 medical centers across the U.S., all of the patients were enrolled in NIH-funded clinical trials. That means that they all had excellent access to evaluation and treatment. They had adequate insurance coverage and they had a strong desire to get treatment. All of these are the roadblocks people point to when there are racial disparities in healthcare, but none of them existed in the current study. Multiple studies have shown that black patients with heart failure are more likely to die. So you would think that clinicians, if anything, should have been more aggressive in being certain that the black patients got the most sophisticated, most advanced treatment available. But it wasn't the case. In fact, of the 100 black patients, only 11 of them received a heart transplant or ventricular assist device while 22% of the white patients did. That's a two-to-one ratio. And it's similar to what we saw during COVID when the white patients who came to the ER with the same symptoms as black patients, the white patients were tested twice as often despite black patients dying 
at the time at a rate that was twice as high as white individuals. Without any question, we have an issue with racial bias inside medicine and with the care provided under identical circumstances varying by the color of one's skin. And as we've said before, that's just wrong. What about a third healthcare story? For a third healthcare story, I point to the massive hits that are happening for hospitals across the U.S. today. Earlier, we talked about the triple-demic and this year's viral respiratory diseases, and they are already hitting our country's pediatric hospitals hard. These facilities are dedicated to the care of kids, and they're seeing two to three times the volume of respiratory infections this year as in a typical one. They're running out of beds. They have insufficient staff. Whether this is a very early flu season or a severe RSV isn't certain. But with schools in full swing, principals are observing a similar phenomenon, a massive increase in infection and absenteeism. Experts believe the mildness of the viral infections over the past two years has, have left more kids vulnerable to becoming very sick. And the crush of patients needing pediatric hospitalization isn't limited to specific geographies. More than 75% of beds in pediatric hospitals across the U.S. are now filled. Rhode Island, Delaware, and Washington all report higher than 94% occupancy. In parallel, adult hospitals are facing major financial challenges as nursing and staff costs go through the roof and the reimbursements they receive stay flat or even are being diminished. Two of the largest for-profit hospital systems, HCA and Tenet, both reported major decreases from a year before. HCA's profits dropped in half, while Tenet decreased by 71% compared to a year ago. And with a large number of nurses threatening to leave hospital nursing, that could drive up costs beyond anything that we've seen in the past. Although some hospitals are doing well, nearly half of the inpatient facilities in the United States reported negative operating margins over the past 12 months. There's little doubt in my mind that the hospitals of the future will be very different than the ones of the past, and many of them are likely to have closed over the next several years. And that will have major impacts on communities, both in rural areas and inner cities. As part of this entire challenge and adding to the difficulties, we are seeing an ever larger shortage of primary care doctors. In Delaware, there today are only 16.4% of the number of primary care physicians required. And what's frustrating is that last year, and actually in almost every year, a thousand graduating medical students, meaning that they're already doctors, they could not get into a residency training program of any kind to address this urgent need. And without at least one year of residency training, 
you can't practice medicine independently in the United States. There simply were not enough primary care residency slots, but with, as I said, a thousand people wanting one and then potentially being available to close the gaps in care created by this primary care shortage. The gaps between the workforce we need and the one we're training today, those gaps are growing. And what we're seeing is that as a country, we're moving backwards, not forwards, in solving the problem. Robbie, any parting thoughts? I do, Jeremy. You know, I worry that we have a crisis in our nation relative to healthcare and scientific expertise. I was struck by a Pew Research study. They looked at 11,687 individuals, and they found that only 41% of Americans agree that scientific, this is a quote, scientific experts are usually better than others at making policy decisions about scientific issues. I recognize that as a physician and scientist, I'm biased. But if the people with the greatest knowledge and expertise aren't the ones most capable of making the best decisions, who is? And this gap in trust, it exists both among Democrats and Republicans, although the survey did demonstrate a greater distrust of scientists among Republicans than Democrats. But even for Democrats, trust was only 55%. My observation is that our nation's elected officials are incapable of making an objective, and by that I mean a non-political decision. When everyone on one side of the aisle votes yes and everyone on the other side of the aisle votes no, on any given issue, it tells me that logic isn't driving people's opinions. Of course, for some questions, there just isn't a right answer. So scientists won't be perfect. But if they can be apolitical, they should be right more often than wrong. Having said that, I believe as a nation, we focus too much on the differences among Americans and not as much as we should on opportunities to create a strong middle. Given what we have discussed today, let me point out three sets of facts for which the research and data is incredibly strong. I recognize that individuals at either extreme end of the political spectrum will disagree that the research is as conclusive as I'm about to state, but hopefully there's a solid group in the middle who can look at the evidence and having done so, I'm confident they will acknowledge the truth in each. First, the COVID-19 vaccine works at preventing severe disease it helps avoid the need for hospitalization and it reduces the number of deaths. Although there are rare complications, it is safe. That doesn't mean that getting the virus and recovering doesn't produce immunity, but counting on that for protection means taking an added risk. Hundreds of millions of Americans have received the vaccine. And that includes women who subsequently became pregnant and ones who were pregnant at the time, and the number of individuals who suffered 
a complication of any sort from the vaccine or following vaccination were minuscule. The second fact, we talked about it earlier early in the show, is that the risk to children of dying from COVID is very low. And tremendous educational harm has been done to kids by the prolonged closure of schools. When we don't have a vaccine, closing schools can make a lot of sense. But once a vaccine is available, we shouldn't have waited so long to resume in-person education. It's a price that we paid for that decision, and it's one that will affect us for decades to come. And finally, when it comes to COVID, one size just doesn't fit all. Governmental agencies like the CDC have failed to provide direction based upon the data that's available. We know that individuals who are elderly, ones with multiple chronic disease, ones who are immunocompromised, are at the highest risk. And we can conclude that all should be vaccinated and boosted. Research from the VA has shown that people over the age of 80 have a 16 times greater chance of developing severe disease and dying compared to individuals 45 to 50. But at the other end, we have kids with a very low, although not zero, chance of becoming very sick. They rarely need hospitalization or die from the infection. And here, parental judgment seems like a far better path than some type of governmental agency mandate. I think our nation needs to embrace these areas of agreement, some that lean a little left, some that lean a little right, but all of which have a tremendous amount of data to support them. You know, people can believe the vaccine doesn't work or it's extremely dangerous, but only if they close their eyes to the data. Others can see school closures as being positive, but only if they ignore the lost education that likely will never be made up. And policy experts can propose a universal approach to the virus, but only if they ignore the data and how differently the virus impacts various segments of the population. When I step back and look at the reams of information that is currently available, it is clear we should have segmented the population, invested far more than we did in vaccinating and boosting those with the highest chance of severe disease. And once a vaccine was available, left the decisions around in-person education to parents and families, helping them to avoid the educational problems that are likely to afflict them for the rest of their life and maybe onto the next generation. Would each of these three approaches have been perfect? No but they would have avoided many of the failures of the past two years. And if enough Americans could come together in the middle and find the areas of overlap and general agreement, hopefully we'll do better in the future, particularly when the next pandemic strikes our nation, which it will.
As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthCarePodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.